This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to dip into Shark Tank because it's a great show, and it's about everything we love about America. Free enterprise, starting businesses, winning, losing. Well, Stephen Chen is in the Shark Tank in this segment, dog by his side with his product called Pet Gnostics. My name is Steven Chen. This here is Austin. I am the founder of Petnostics, and I'm here today seeking $300,000 in exchange for 10% of my company. Wow. What is Petnostics? We all love our pets like our children, and it's important to monitor their health regularly. Unlike children, though, our pets cannot talk to us, and that's why I started Petnostics. Petnostics allows you to check your pet's health instantly by analyzing your dog or cat's urine with your smartphone. So let's pretend that this blue liquid is Austin's urine. So here we have Austin's sample in the Petnostics cup, which has a special lid that's integrated with the same chemical test strips that vets use in their clinics. Once you get your pet's urine in our cup, simply screw on the lid and flip the cup over. These test pads will then change colors depending on your pet's health and our app will scan the cup and analyze the color changes, telling you about possible health issues. Uh, gross. <laughs> so it comes down to sample time. And guest shark Ashton Kutcher has an obvious question. How do you collect the dog pee? Austin and I would like to know if urine. Urine? Oh, oh no. Um, I have samples here for you today, and I'll be happy to answer any questions you may have. the cutest dog. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Steve, can I ask you a question? Yes. How do you capture the urine sample? (laughs) It's a good question. Very good question. So pet parents know that pets relieve themselves on schedule. So for me and Austin, when I'm walking him, I know when he's about to pee, I just get the cup behind him, and I'm able to get the sample that way. You (laughs) had to step the cup (laughs) under your dog and letting your dog piss in your hand in the cup to capture the sample. They give you a glove. (laughs) For pet parents that have a little bit more trouble collecting the urine, we have the Petnostics urine collector. <laughs> it's a little ladle with an extendable handle. And it's like so a selfie for stick. female dogs, or yeah, you, and so when Austin, if, if it's a female dog and they um, squat, you can just kind of you know get underneath there oh. and get the urine that way. How much do you actually need to capture for you the diagnostics to work? Just a little teeny bit, yeah, for the strips to change color. Oh, that's so good. Well, you know, from this mirthful moment. Mr. Wonderful, well, he wants to get down to business. What does it cost the consumer to do all this stuff and get all the paraphernalia for pea collection? We retail the cups for $10. What no, does yeah, it cost you? It costs me $2 right now to make one of these. How low do you think you can get it at volume? Um, we think we can get our cost down to about $0.90. Cents. It's a one-time lab, right? It's a one-time use cup. Okay. Right. How many cups have you sold it to how many customers? So cups, we've sold about 10,000 cups. What? Well, in what period of time? When did you start? We started in April 2014. How have you sold them? So we've sold right now just through our website and through local retail stores in Southern California. It's very impressive. And so the leading bets, they liken our product to a check engine light. You know, see, if there's something wrong potentially under the hood, then you still have to have the expert, the vet, take care of it. Well, before anyone hears sales numbers, Robert, jump ship. I'm not sold on the business model. Vets want to make more money, not less money. Mm -hmm. I believe in this product, but I also have to really believe in a very clear distribution channel. Mm-hmm. I think you're early. Okay. I'm out. Okay. Thank you. Steven gives us his sales projections. Mr. Wonderful 
smells weakness or pee. We're projecting $200,000 in sales this Okay, year. so you're not making any money yet. So next year, we're projecting hopefully $400,000 in sales with these new specific disease tests. That's, that market makes up 590 million um, tests that potentially can be done. But it's not clear yet, Stephen, what the go-to-market distribution strategy is. We're talking about vets, direct sales online, maybe retail if you can find enough margin. Mm -hmm. That's not clear yet. These are all to be determined, right? Yes. There's a bit of risk in your deal in terms of what's going to happen. You're a little pre-revenue-ish. Mm -hmm. You know, what I love about Shark Tank deals is when it's already proven what the channel is going to work, I pour $300,000 on it, it's just like gasoline on fire, it explodes. You're not there yet. Okay. Ouch. Mark Cuban is out. Here's why. I'm very involved on the human side. I've got an investment in a company called Biomine that does blood um, analysis. My point is that being strip-driven, I think, will have a, a, a life cycle. I just don't see it as a long-term life cycle. I see that as a problem. I'm out. Okay. Thank you. Ouch. Well, what about Ashton? He doesn't want to get his hands wet. My biggest concern is still around the very first question that we had around collection. I think that you're going to be disrupted by a bunch of other platforms that can do the same thing that you do without the messiness of having to do a urine sample. <laughs> and so for that reason, I'm out. Thank you. We all know that Mr. Wonderful isn't afraid to get a little dog urine on his hands <laughs> if there's a profit to be made. Well, here's what he has to offer. I'm more concerned about distribution risk, how you blow this thing out so you sell a few million dollars of it. <laughs> I want to reflect that in my offer. I'll do the 300000 for 15%. Okay. Interesting. Wow. You know, Kevin, I've watched the show a lot. Your deals always have ratchets, levers. You have some loyalty, <laughs> some plug in. No, I'm really good at that. I'm the most creative shark instructor. Mark's learning from me all the time. You can call it creative. I'm learning what not to do. I call it, I call it founder abuse, but you yeah. call it creative. <laughs> I, I, I'm really curious about why you're offering a straight equity deal on this. I do them occasionally, but I think this is a play on trying to figure out which channel works and then pouring gasoline on it. QVC Queen Lori has an offer of her own. I've sold a lot of products over the last 18 years, and I have seen so many people spend so much on their pets, and they want to make sure that they're okay. I'm going to make you an offer. 300000 for 20%. Well, between Kevin and Lori, who will get this deal? Would you consider 300000 for 15%? Ooh, equaling Kevin's offer, Lori. I feel at 15%, you know, as much as I really do love this and I think it's a great product, and my. Queen, come here for a second. Be, the king is speaking. Uh, if you want to split the deal, I'll do 50 50 for 20%. 20%. This is, this is because you didn't move fast enough in some ways. 20%. 50 50. King and queen. And you had 15. Queen and Joker. It's the only offer on the table now. I'm in. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good presentation. And I get the dog. Thank you, Thank you so much. Good idea. Thank you so much. And another great shake shark. Shark tank, not shake tank. And we got to take a potty break.
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And that was a dog sneezing, if you can believe it. One more time, Jesse. And that was BarkPost.com's selection from the number one viral dog video of 2015. And we played this delicious sneeze, and I'm sure all of you have a different sneezing dog sound in your life. And I have a I have a very loud pug when it comes to snoring, and I am going to record that just for this guest the next time she joins us. And it's Jory Larson now joins us, and she is well, she's the key person behind BarkPost.com. Thanks for joining us, Jory. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, many people believe dogs are people. I do. I mean, they are members of my family. I want to play another short clip for you. This time of dog owners treating their now-famous dog, Mishka, with over 100 million YouTube views like a human. Mishka, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Good girl. I love you. <laughs> Jory, in your case, you gave your dog an actual IQ test. And it didn't right. go and it didn't did. go well. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So um Bark Post, one of my editors came to me and said, you know, we, we have this idea for um an at home intelligence test that you can administer to your dog and then just write about the results and see what happens. So um I followed along. There's an internet doggy IQ test that you can follow along at home. Um, I, I took an afternoon and I had my husband photograph it so we could have some pictures for the post. And I kind of went through, um, I think it's about four to five steps. You can do it in less than an hour. Um, and I was really curious to see what Winnie's IQ would be. Like any dog owner, um, you know, you think your dog is the smartest dog in the world at times. And of course, they also have their derpy moments is how we like to refer to it when they're yeah. uh, behaving like less than an Einstein. But um, the test actually was really interesting to see how Winnie reacted. I, I really couldn't have predicted how she was going to perform. And your, your Winnie, your dear Winnie, is a two-year-old Australian shepherd, right? That's right. Yeah, it, it's a breed that's pretty, pretty known for their intelligence. Um, right up there with Border Collies. At least that's what Australian shepherd owners always kind of... Uh, Maybe it's a myth that we're circulating around that they're as smart as Border Collies. Um, but, yeah, so she's, she rings a bell when she tells us she has to go to the bathroom outside, which I always thought was kind of uh, a, signi- you know, a signifier of intelligence. Um, so I was really curious to see how she would perform. Well, I can tell you this. I have uh, pugs, and I don't even need to give them an IQ test, Jory, because these dogs, they're just not right. They're not particularly smart, and they cannot be taught. I have given up trying to train them. I've owned them my whole life, and anyone who owns pugs knows what I'm talking about. Talk about your, your – you said at one point you said about your dog, I swear she understands long strings of English, and she rings a bell to tell us when she has to go potty. That's pretty damn smart, Jory. Yeah, yeah. So we actually um, – I think we got this idea from a book that we read when she was a puppy. We hung um, a bell next to the door. And we started when we got her when she was 10 weeks old. So we started right away. Every time we took her out to go to the bathroom, we would ring the bell. So she would start to associate that feeling of having to go to the bathroom with ringing the bell. And she got it within two weeks. So she was, she was less than three months old. She would nudge the bells with her nose 
and then we would know to let her out. Right. So we thought that was pretty cool and pretty smart. Yeah, it is pretty cool, and it's, it's darn smart. And again, I, I'm getting jealous listening to you describe the intelligence of your dog because ours are, are so silly. <laughs> they, they don't even know where to poop. I mean, they, they get confused about, like, pooping. So tell us about the test you did with well that involved a blanket and your dog's head. Talk about that test. Yes. So, so the first step in the intelligence test is to toss a blanket over your dog's head in, in one swift motion. And then you're going to start your stopwatch, and you're going to time how long it takes for them to kind of shake off this towel off their head. Right. So when we first threw it on, she she did nothing. She froze. And so I started to think, oh, this, this might be a red flag. Um, and I, I think what it was is she might have been a little frightened by, you know, what, what are mom and dad doing to me right now? Um, so she did wiggle off, and she shimmied it off in 19 seconds. So that earned her three points on, on the scale. And if it took them... You know, 31 seconds to two minutes, okay, you only get two points. Um, if you try but you don't get the blanket off at all in two minutes, the dog only gets a point. And if the dog doesn't attempt to do anything, just lets the blanket kind of sit there until you come to their rescue, <laughs> right. they get zero points. They get zero. Again, my pugs, yeah. I know there is zero. Jory, I don't, I don't have to run them through this test. Talk about talk about some other things that you're you're you're, you're testing in, in this in this space. What are some of the other things you look at in terms of dog sure. intelligence? So we also there's another um, test where you're kind of seeing if they can understand almost object permanence. So you place a high value treat, so whether it's salami or string cheese or whatever your dog you know really wants to get at, you cut up a little piece and you put it underneath. Um, like a dish towel, a regular towel, a blanket, and you make sure that they see that it goes under there. Right. And then the whole point is to see, start the stopwatch again, how long it takes your dog to actually get the towel off the treat. Um, and this is where our Winnie had her first setback. She couldn't do it. She could not get the towel off the treat. And at one point, she was actually kind of trying to suck the string cheese through the towel. <laughs> it's like right. she, she gave up totally. She kind of resigned herself to the fact that she wasn't going to actually get to chew the string cheese, but maybe she could slurp up some flavor. So that was a, that was a minor setback. Yeah, I'm not sure how my, my producers would do on that one, though, either. I mean, I don't think they do well either. They just try to eat through the towel. Any other any other tests, Jory? Uh, t- talk about some other parts of this intelligence test. Uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, sure. So um, the third the third step in this test, you um, it's it involves a treat again. So you're going to cut up another piece of your high value treat, and you make a little wooden plank, you know, maybe a foot off the ground, um, supported. We did books on either end, and we place the treat underneath the wooden plank, far enough away that your dog can't quite reach it with. Her, her muzzle alone, she has to use a paw. That's, this is sort of testing, you know, do they have the wherewithal to, to use other tools to get to the treat besides their, their snout? And so you cover it with a towel and you start the stopwatch again and uh, you time it to see how long it takes them to actually paw the towel out, you know, get off the towel and get to the treat. Um, and so with Winnie again, she, she pawed at the towel. She was able to pull it from underneath the plank. She understood that she had to use her paws, but she could not, she, she never understood the concept of actually getting the towel off of the treat. So she started to chew this time we used a milk bone. She started to chew the milk bone through the towel and actually she put a hole in my brand new towel, which I should never have used for this time. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe you get a bad score on the owner test there, Jory. 
<laughs> right. And I will say, I think, you know, with any dog that you're testing, I think Winnie was a little thrown by all, all of these tricks and I think she was kind of suspicious. So if you do this test at home, you have to take it with a grain of salt because your dog might just be kind of thinking, what's up with mom and dad? I'm not going to perform. Right. The heck with them. What are, the, what are they doing to me? And this is, uh, this is their goofy way of entertaining themselves. I'm not on for this. You know what I'd love, Joey? Send us some material periodically. We are fascinated with dogs and human beings. And I think as people are getting lonelier, too, as people are having smaller families, uh, the pet, I think, is playing a more central part of human beings' lives. And I don't know if you, you agree with that. Maybe just a quick second on that. Do you, do you think that's what's happening in part, Joey? Absolutely. I, I really do. I, I feel like dogs and, and cats probably too, but dogs are our specialty at Bark Post. Um, I, I feel like more and more people are treating them like members of the family. Um, you know, you see whether it's a high-end doggy daycare or, you know, you, you don't have a dog here anymore. You take them to a nice boarding place, a nice kennel. It's, I feel like everything um, is kind of going a little bit more of the luxury route when it comes to pet ownership. Um, yeah, and it does feel like maybe, maybe there is something that there that the families are getting a little bit smaller, people are living further away from their family members, so it's nice when you come home after a long day, you open the door, and, you know, your dog is always going to be so happy to see you, and, and it makes you feel like home where, well, whenever you're with your dog. I think so. that's what's going on, too, and I know that my wife is now spending more on meals for my dogs with their fancy food than me, and so... I, and, I, and I don't care. I, I've, I've, I'm done fighting it, Jory. The dog now is more important than me, and I'm fine with it. Jo, Jory Larson, thanks for joining us. Keep sending us stuff. We'd love to hear more from you, from Bark Post, and from the animals. Thanks so much for joining sounds, us. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Jesse's just having so much fun playing with the dials. And playing the dog sounds. And we love animals here on Our American Stories. And we love sports. We love love. And we love music. And when we come back, more after these messages. You call me out. I can't hide anymore. I have no disguise. You can't see through This is Our American Stories, and we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, business, American history, and our favorite subject is generosity, and the generous things Americans do for each other and do for the world, and we love that space of gratitude, too, because in the end, when you have gratitude, happiness is possible, and if we can do anything with this show, that's one of the things we want to try and do here is just give people a little bit of light in their day each day. And it's why we love bringing you our sweet charity segment with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications, and a guy as eclectic as the stories you'll hear in this great series. Carl has authored 11 books, including two from his on-the-ground reporting 
during the Iraq War. He has a storytelling cookbook and even a graphic novel published by Marvel Comics. A graphic novel from a guy who is an aide to Daniel Patrick Moynihan and served as the chief domestic policy advisor to the President of the United States. He also lives in a houseboat, which more than anything should tell you that you're in for a treat. Take it away, Carl. Colleges have just come back into session. That's a big moment for students and for families paying tuition. It's also a big deal for U.S. donors. Colleges and universities are the second favorite charitable cause for Americans today, after religious organizations. Each year, we voluntarily donate more than $40 billion to higher education. And over the last decade, it has been one of the fastest expanding categories of charitable support. Interestingly, only about a quarter of the money given to colleges comes from alumni. The rest is offered by parties who just think that strong colleges are important to our future success. A few months ago, I spoke at the University of Kentucky. They had just received a large $23 million gift to build a new honors college. The man who gave the money was a successful home builder named Tom Lewis. He'd built his career and spent nearly all of his adult life in Arizona. So why such a big gift to Kentucky, I kept asking people. It turns out all 16 of Tom Lewis's great-grandparents were Kentuckians. He felt a personal connection to the state. He wanted to thank and support the people from which he had sprung. In addition to being very personal in that sort of way, America's attachment to college education can be highly emotional. For some people, college has taken on an almost spiritual importance. Listen to this clip from a speech that Apple computer founder Steve Jobs gave at Stanford University, describing how an insistence on college education almost turned his early childhood upside down. My biological mother was a young, unwed graduate student, and she decided to put me up for adoption. She felt very strongly that I should be adopted by college graduates, so everything was all set for me to be adopted at birth by a lawyer and his wife. Except that when I popped out, they decided at the last minute that they really wanted a girl. So my parents, who were on a waiting list, got a call in the middle of the night asking, we've got an unexpected baby boy, do you want him? They said, of course. My biological mother found out later that my mother had never graduated from college and that my father had never graduated from high school. She refused to sign the final adoption papers. She only relented a few months later when my parents promised that I would go to college. To give you a sense of how much sway colleges exert over the American imagination and pocketbook today, consider this. There are currently 50 U.S. colleges in the midst of fundraising campaigns in which they expect to gather at least a billion dollars in voluntary donations. These campaigns are built on very broad bases. The average alumni gift to a college today is a little over $300, but there are lots of givers. Do you realize that private gifts now power even our public universities? Schools like the University of Virginia and the University of California at Berkeley, even though they are state institutions, now get more revenue from voluntary giving than they receive in total state appropriations. Our tradition of giving money of our own volition to support college-going stretches back to our very beginning, a century and a half before we even had a country. One of the earliest institutions set up in the first American settlement was the so-called New College, established in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1636. 
Three years later, it was renamed for a young minister who donated his library and half of his estate to aid the institution. John Harvard, he was called. America's very first recorded fund drive, launched in 1643, raised 500 British pounds for the college. The next year, colonial families were asked to donate a shilling in cash or a peck of grain to support this little citadel of higher learning in their midst. These voluntary donations, known as the college corn, sustained Harvard for more than a decade. Relying on private donors to pay for educating the next generation of leaders was a radically new American idea. In all other countries, training up young adults was the responsibility of the crown or the church. But popular support for education burst forth all across our new land, producing the College of William and Mary in 1693, St. John's College in 1696, Yale in 1701, and then many others. Underlying the successes of college fundraising are many philanthropic sub-innovations. For instance, did you know that the endowed college chair is an invention of U.S. philanthropy? Endowed chairs seem so ordinary to us now, it's tempting to assume that they must be common everywhere. But actually, this practice remains rare outside the U.S. In 1721, a wealthy merchant and Baptist in Boston named Thomas Hollis wanted to express his gratitude for the good treatment that Baptists like him received in the American colonies after fleeing England. So he gave Harvard College enough money to pay 80 pounds per year for many years to a professor who would occupy the Hollis Chair of Divinity. Five years later, Hollis established another professorship, a chair of mathematics. All told, his gifts to the college eventually topped 6,000 pounds, a staggering amount for the time. And his endowed professorships were so successful that they spread rapidly across the U.S. and became a popular way for donors to support higher education. This charitable mechanism was one of the crucial forces that eventually pushed American colleges and universities to the top of the international heap. Even more important to the meteoric rise of American colleges was the way everyday citizens chipped in to support higher ed in their region. I was struck to discover a few years ago that in 1880, the state of Ohio, which was then populated by just 3 million inhabitants, had 37 colleges. In that same year, the entire nation of England, home to 23 million people, had only four colleges. Why the difference? Small-scale education philanthropy in the U.S. In scores of our frontier communities and small towns, local citizens made sacrificial gifts to make sure there would be places for young Americans to become educated. Lots of farm families set aside a portion of the money they made from selling milk or eggs to help build their local college. Coins collected in church plates paid for many early campuses. Hillsdale College was created after professor and preacher Ransom Dunn traveled more than 6,000 miles on foot and horseback, collecting nickels and dimes and dollars from settlers all across the wildlands of Michigan. A couple years ago, I came across some amazing stories about the devoted local giving that created places like Western Reserve University. It was built up by thousands of little donors, like the farmer who spent one entire winter hauling stone to campus from a quarry by horse and wagon. It eventually produced science powerhouse Case Western Reserve University, which has produced 16 Nobel Prize winners and the founders of many prominent businesses. In the beginning, though, it and hundreds of other campuses like it were just a dream supported by everyday residents who wanted to live in an educated republic and were willing to do whatever they could to help. Great job on that, Carl. 
This is Lee Habib. Sweet charity, generosity, a fundamental part of the American story on Our American Stories. More after these messages. American Stories, and you're listening to Bernard Herman's remarkable soundtrack, to Psycho. And when I hear that soundtrack, I think showers. And that, of course, leads us to Jesse's Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. The first guy that died with life insurance never knew if it was a scam. As a teenager, I was told not to trust anyone on the internet and not to be stupid online. Now... I'm telling my parents the same things. <laughs> USB sounds like a backup plan in case the USA fails. It's pretty dumb that I get a new driver's license every four years and it's made out of hard plastic. And I'm supposed to have my social security card for life and it's made out of paper. There's enough apps for finding friends, lovers, and soulmates. I want an app that helps me find my arch enemy. Using your old laptop to research buying a new one is like asking it to dig its own grave. Girl Scouts is basically a brand name cookie company that gets away with child labor. When I unsubscribe from a newsletter and get an email confirming that I've been unsubscribed, it feels like they needed to be the one to say the last word in an argument. Candlelight dinners weren't very special before the light bulb was invented. As an adult, I'm not eating nearly as much ice cream as 10-year-old me thought I would. My dog keeps bringing me the same toy. I wonder if that's his favorite toy or if he thinks it's my favorite toy. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people is a quote that discusses people. In FBI shows, cops are incompetent, unskilled simpletons who just get in the way. In cop shows, the FBI are bureaucratic, incompetent simpletons who just get in the way. The person who would proofread Hitler's speeches was a real-life grammar Nazi. <laughs> Casinos should let people play Monopoly with real money. Nothing says top of the food chain like squid ink calamari pasta. You're eating another animal and seasoning it with its own defense mechanism. At age 30, you've spent an entire month having birthdays over your lifetime. In a 500-day period, I could theoretically meet someone, get married, have a baby, and get divorced, and yet I'd still be using the same box of Q-tips. 
Oh, thank you, Jesse. And we love just featuring the work of our staff. And Jesse is our Cracker Jack executive producer. And there's a few people in this country better at it, but he's just, he's wickedly funny too. And we love some of our regular contributors. And one of them, well, he's a guy named Steve Goldberg. And he chaired the sociology department at City College of New York. And he's the kind of guy who you sit on a bench, you have a snack or you're cracking open a sandwich or a beer, and six hours will pass. You'll speak maybe 10% of the time and you won't care because he's just so endlessly fascinating. And Stan, tell us what you and your pal Steve Goldberg are digging into in this conversation with, 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 with this conversation with Steve that you had this week. Exactly as you say. You just pick up the phone and with Steve, you never know where it's going to go. Can you, can you imagine taking a class with this guy? Just where where would twist and turn? But this week, he starts off a sentence by saying, I've always heard that Darwin's theory of evolution is one of the greatest discoveries made by man, up there with Einstein's and Archimedes. And with that, we said, okay, he's got one. Hit start recording, and he's off to the races. So here's our conversation with Steve. My understanding of biology is pretty much limited to the knowledge that save for a bunch of tiny little guys at the bottom, technically known as germs, all living things are divided into two groups, meat and vegetables. Nonetheless, the following is, I think, worthy of consideration. As you no doubt know, there is a very famous view of the evolution of species, Darwin's theory of evolution. Darwin's theory is often presented as among the very greatest of scientific theories, equivalent to Einstein's theory of relativity. Well, maybe. But things are not that simple. At the very least, there is a serious glitch with Darwin. The nature of this criticism becomes clear if we consider that virtually all scientists mean by a scientific statement or hypothesis or theory. A statement is scientific only if it is vulnerable to refutation. If you couldn't lose, you can't win. The statement need not be correct nor need it be vulnerable to refutation in practice. The statement that the other side of the moon is made of green cheese was scientific, though of course woefully incorrect, even 500 years before the development of the rocket ship. Likewise, Einstein's MC squared would obviously be refuted by the discovery that energy doesn't equal mass times the speed of, of light squared. Now, let us consider Darwin's theory. A few years after Darwin announced his theory, the theory was summed up to Darwin's satisfaction by Herbert Spencer, as describable by the phrase, survival of the fittest. On average, those species that were the most fit would be the species that survive. And the species that survive are those that are most fit. It sounds perfectly reasonable at first. But think about it for a minute. Let us say that Darwin had said that the biggest species will, on average, survive. No problem. While, of course, incorrect, the theory would predict that, on average, species like dinosaurs will survive, while species like dachshunds won't. The theory would obviously be incorrect, but the fact that it can be shown to be incorrect demonstrates that it has the structure required of science. Now to the point. 
Darwin didn't say that the biggest species, but the fittest species survive. Say dinosaurs survive and dachshunds don't. According to Darwin, that's because dinosaurs are fit. But say the dachshunds survive and dinosaurs don't. That's because dachshunds are fit. Wait a minute. How could Darwin lose? Whatever survives will be claimed to be to have survived because it is fit. Fit and survive are defined in terms of each other. They are not like big and survive, defined independently. Darwin couldn't lose. Darwin's theory is not a theory. Survival of the fittest is a tautology. The two terms are, unlike biggest and survival, defined in terms of each other. And the claim, therefore, could not be refuted. This, is criti- this criticism of Darwinism um, makes biologists fume and philosophers giggle. Nonetheless, it was recognized within 15 seconds of Darwin's announcement by the great evolutionist biologist T.H. Huxley and by many, though not all, great biologists since. Incidentally, a general concept of evolution was suggested long before Darwin's century. Um, Even in ancient times, Anaximenes and Aristotle proposed roughly evolutionary theories. Um, of species development, and many more um, since then. Many such theories were, unlike Darwin's, teleological, having an inherent direction, and they lacked Darwin's suggested mechanism, survival of the fittest. Um, But they did posit evolution long before Darwin did. So is this vulnerability to refutation where you draw the line between questions of science and questions of faith? Um, well, I guess I wouldn't emphasize the faith part of what it is if it's not science. Is, I, I guess you could call it faith. Um, I, I think that's a little unfair, because in truth, I, I wouldn't say that, that Darwin is nonsense. It, what it certainly does is points attention to discovering the reason for the extinction of individual uh, species. And that's not, that has no, none of the problem I talked about. If you wanted to, why did dinosaurs not survive? And you could say, it was because a comet hit, or because their eggs got too thin, or whatever. These are scientific theories to, for which there is evidence. There's no question of tautology there. So certainly, I just call it faith would be uh, uh, criticizing it more than necessary. But I do think it's a very important point that a, that a scientific statement, a scientific theory, must tell you the, the the terms under which it would be surrendered, and uh, you can't do that. When, when you try to apply Darwin to all species, not to individual species, but as a general theory of why species survive or don't, I, I don't think it is a theory because it can't be refuted. In your, in your decades in academia, where else have you seen this sort of circular uh, tautological logic, you know, where, where, where it sounds fine at first, but if you think about it, you flip the coin and you win either way? It's a wonderful question, and I can't. Uh, philosophy is not well. I've occasionally published in philosophy journals. It's it's not really my field, so it may be that other philosophers could give you example. I have never found another example. Indeed, it takes a certain kind of genius to come up with a theory that's tautological. It's not so easy. Try to make up one, and you'll find it's it's very difficult. So I I can't give you another example. I give you lots of examples of terrible theories, but we know they're terrible because they can be and have been refuted. But but theories that can't be refuted, that couldn't be refuted, the only one I know is that. And that's our man Stan talking to one of our favorite guests, Steve. Steve Goldberg, 
the guy you just want to talk to about anything. When we come back, more with Our American Stories after these messages. To capture more of Steve Goldberg, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and just look up his name. Seven times a day Where the people laugh and children play Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for a hot talk, change the dial. If you're looking for fierce political debate, there's someplace else you'll find home. Hear only stories, two hours a night. And joining us for our On Leadership series is Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at Chick-fil-A, thus the Tim Hawkins bit on Chick-fil-A. And uh, just a little setting on leadership is where we go back and, and talk to leaders from various parts of American life. We've done, well, folks who've passed, Jackie Robinson. We did an hour on Jackie Robinson with Pat Williams. Nobody's written better about uh, leadership than Pat. Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Faye Vincent, who was a commissioner of Major League Baseball. We did a great hour with him. He was also the head of uh, Sony Pictures in Paramount. And uh, today, well, we wanted to learn a bit more about, well, what leadership means to someone at, at Chick-fil-A headquarters. And I don't think there's a better corporate role model in the country than Chick-fil-A. Uh, and it's not just that we're addicted to the product, but we're addicted to the service and the servant heart of this great organization. I'd love to talk to you first uh, before we dig into the book, which we're going to get to in the next couple of segments. But always we like to start off with a person's story. What What got you into this line of work, what was your first job as a child? I actually go back to some entrepreneurial roots, Lee. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I started out as a child, my first job is I opened a little candy store. We lived on the route to the swimming pool. And so everyone uh, during the summertime that was headed to the neighborhood swimming pool had to go right by our house. I had a friend in the grocery business. So I went and bought uh, my products at wholesale prices and sold them at retail made a little profit and went back and restocked the store again. And that was my first job. Well, you know, and uh, we, we have a, a feeling here on this show. We talk about First Jobs Fridays and we were talking to famous people, not famous people, because we're learning that the earlier people start work, the better. It's remarkable what happens. In fact, Mark Cuban had this amazing story about how his father, he wanted money for sneakers. And his father said, well, there's some black plastic bags here. There's some extras. Go sell them door to door. And so at 11 years old, he sold a bunch of black plastic bags door to door and bought a pair of sneakers. And as he said, learned everything about life he needed to know there, not at business school. So go figure. Let's talk about your father. Uh, tell us a bit about your dad and a little bit about your family. And also, where, where were you were born? The, the, describe the, the neighborhood, the town where you were born. I was born in Atlanta. And I grew up, first of all, in Decatur, Georgia, which was a medium-sized town. And later we moved to Uh, We were moving to the suburbs out a little further to Stone Mountain, which has grown up a great deal, too. People know Stone Mountain, of course, from the famous mountain, um, one of the seven wonders of the world. And 
uh, grew up in that neighborhood. My dad was an attorney and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And we had a very typical uh, two children, a dog occasionally, a cat most often uh, over the years. And uh, my dad was my greatest uh, business mentor. Um, he, along with Truett Cathy, and uh, lost him in 2013. And part of my grief process was actually writing It's My Pleasure um, as I grieved the loss of my dad. And tell us about something specific about your dad. Uh, we love to ask people. We had uh, we did an hour on Bear Bryant. We were talking to some of his some of his boys, and they were men, but they were still remembering specific things Coach did for them that taught them about leadership. Something about your dad specifically that we could learn something about his father's listening right now. One of the things that dad, uh, I think my work ethic came from my dad. I don't ever remember my dad not going to work. Uh, he got up, went to work, worked long, worked hard. And I, um, some of that was not as good, uh, but I learned so much about work ethic for him, from him. And the other interesting thing was around language. My dad was big on vocabulary and what I learned, and he used to always say, profanity is the sign of a weak vocabulary. So we didn't have any profanity in our house um, because otherwise we were seen as having a weak vocabulary. So he taught you, in a sense, a, a, a bit about work, a whole lot about work, and a whole lot about how to carry yourself. Absolutely. Uh, what about your, your mom? And then uh, after your mom, a key mentor in your life uh, who might have gotten you where you needed to be in your life. Uh, my mom was just the consummate. Um, she gave up her. She's a great stay at home mom. She gave up her career. Uh, she met my dad in law school and she knew it wasn't going to work to have two lawyers in the family. Dad was quite competitive <laughs> and uh, she figured out really quickly that was going to cause some problems. So uh, she decided to give up her career and she um, she was the kind of mom that had a three course meal on the table every night and um, she ironed the sheets in our house. She was just um, tremendous in that way. My spiritual um, mentor was my mother. Um, she just taught me um, everything about faith and was that example in my life. And uh, for that, I'm extremely grateful. Um, my parents were my greatest mentors for, for different reasons. But beyond them, I'd have to say uh, my greatest mentor was Truett Cathy. And the reason um, being that is not only did I learn a lot of business principles, but what Truett taught, uh, and he said it all the time, we're not in the chicken business, we're in the people business. And so he um, taught me the whole principle that we could do almost anything, but it's really though that job is just a means to impact lives. And that's what I learned from him. And tell us about uh, something unexpected. This is another question we ask guests before we dig into anything. Tell us an unexpected event in your life that helped shape your life. Something you weren't prepared for. It came out of nowhere. Sometimes it can be an untimely death. I mean, we've had everything under the sun. Uh, something unexpected that happened in your life. Well, I think the most unexpected thing happened is that in 2007, after uh, when my husband asked me to marry him way back in 1983, I said I would. He was studying to be a pastor, and I said, but under the condition that I'm not going on the mission field. And I didn't believe for one minute that I ever wanted to spend time in a foreign country. And um, in 2007, I found myself, the first mission trip I take is in, in a village two and a half hours outside of Nairobi, Kenya. And um, what I learned there um, shaped my life forever. And um, because I saw, um, I saw people who had absolutely nothing that had this incredible joy. And uh, it changed my life. Well, that's great. Uh, we're talking to Deanne Tuner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at Chick-fil-A. 
on Leadership Series, and we love to talk to everybody. And again, we even spoke through the dead. Jackie Robinson, go on our website, ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to that Jackie Robinson piece with Pat Williams. More with Deanne after this message. fast food i know just what he'd eat not taco bell the pizza hut or even mickey d's because clowns have always scared him just trust me i can tell but there's something about that upright cow who needs to learn to spell This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're talking to Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at Chick-fil-A. By the way, I love that title. Because human resources, and I'm not saying this is the human resource department, but I've always believed that there are two types of capital in the world. There's capital capital, and that's money. And then there's the human capital. And that you're seeing your people as talent. Is a, it's a beautiful thing, and I, I just had to, to recognize that, and I hope more companies emulate that. Treat your people like talent. They'll actually act like talent. And we're now going to dive into It's My Pleasure, the Impact of Extraordinary Talent in a Compelling Culture. Uh, and this is, of course, Deanne's book. And how did this book come to be, Deanne? I mentioned earlier about my dad and that he passed away in August of 2013. And about that same time, Truett, uh, who had been a huge mentor in my life and I had worked for for almost 30 years at that point, he became ill and was not in the business um, at that point. And so that was uh, I was really grieving both of those things in my life. Uh, My whole life was changing. My boys were going off to college and law school and uh, just so many changes were happening. And, And honestly, I heard a sermon from Andy Stanley And the question that was asked in that sermon is, God, what would you have me to do in these circumstances? So I began praying this prayer for six months. And the other thing I said to God is, if you say so, I will. So if you you bring somebody in front of me that I need to meet or you have a place for me to go, I'll go do those things so that I can find what it is you would have me to do in these circumstances. Also, during that time, my then 14-year-old son kept saying, Mom, when are you going to write that book you always talked about? When are you going to write that book? I'd always wanted to be a writer since the time I was eight years old. And uh, I finally got a little exasperated with Trey, and I said, son, when God writes it in the sky, I'll write the book. The other thing that happened during that time is I, I told my assistant that I'd like to go to Boise, Idaho. And she said, why Boise? And I said, well, it's a market I've never been to. Chick-fil-A has some new restaurants there. I'd like to take one of my mentees in 2015 and go there. And uh, she knows me too well. She kind of blew me off a little bit, and she said, Delta doesn't even fly there direct. Um, (laughs) So in June of 2014, after I'd prayed that prayer for six months, I got an email. And the email said, I don't know if you remember me, but I interviewed you a few years ago for a magazine article, and I was wondering if you had a book in you you'd like to publish. And I looked up in the sky, and I said, you didn't write it in the sky, but you sent it in the sky. (laughs) And so since I said, if you say so, I will, I picked up the phone, and I called the guy. 
And uh, we started talking. I was very skeptical about it. And I said, why me? And he said, well, you're you're a woman, a businesswoman with a, a faith edge to you. And that's kind of uncommon. I think that would be an interesting niche. And so I, I said, okay. And he said, and there's one more thing. I said, what's that? He said, God's imprinted your name on my heart for the last six months. Wow. So we started... Uh, we continued our discussion. I said, well, sounds like we should meet. I said, are you ever in Atlanta? He said, I have some clients there, but I don't have any plans to be there anytime soon. I said, well, I better come see you. Where are you located? Well, of course, he of was course. located in Boise, Idaho. Of course. Of <laughs> and course. so that was the start of how it all came about. And uh, over the course of about the next six months, I wrote It's My Pleasure. And let's talk about purpose. Uh, you, you have a premise here that a company has to know its purpose. And by the way, I believe this about a family. I believe this about a country. I believe this about almost everything. And I love asking people, what's your purpose? I love asking young people what their purpose is. Uh, talk about this. And how, how did uh, your boss and your mentor manage this purpose-driven culture that is Chick-fil-A? What's interesting about Chick-fil-A's well-known corporate purpose, it didn't come about until 1983. And Chick-fil-A had been incorporated since 1964. And what happened was that uh, we'd moved into a brand-new corporate campus and Chick-fil-A was both in debt from this brand-new building that we had, and we had the first sales slump ever, and Truett was concerned. And so he took his executive committee off to a retreat, and what's interesting is they didn't do what most corporations do. They didn't come up with a new sales contest for Chick-fil-A operators. Um, They didn't come up with a cost reduction plan. They didn't come up with a reduction in force. They came up with the purpose of why we were in business at all. And that was to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to be a positive influence with all who come in contact and with all with whom we all come in contact. And um, so from that, um, they came back and they shared that purpose. And the Chick-fil-A staff that year actually carved it into stone and put it in the front door so that everyone who came by would see why we were there at all. So the results were pretty outstanding. Chick-fil-A's had a sales increase every year since. In 2012, we became debt-free. We enjoy a retention rate of Chick-fil-A operators of about 95% and of Chick-fil-A staff members about 96%. And so knowing what you're doing and being about something that's bigger than yourself has really proved to be the center of our culture. Well, and by the way, that's a unique thing that happened at that retreat because I've been on those retreats with companies and I've watched panic ensue. And in the end, cost-cutting, and in the end, the stripping away of whatever culture was left. So there had to be something distinct about your boss and mentor that even put him there. Has he ever spoken about where that, where that strength came from to go in that direction? Where, where did that come from? Because that's so counterintuitive for what most business people would face, because that's a crisis. And most people react very poorly when a crisis hits. That was part of the strength of Truett's character. He had been through a lot. He was he grew up in the Depression. Many people don't know this, but his family lived in the first housing project in Atlanta. Uh, his mother ran a boarding house, and, and he jokes about the reason he served chicken breast is because he never he, the guest always got those, and he never got it. So Truett was accustomed to surviving and to getting through crisis. And so I think the strength of his leadership and his personal character and purpose were the role model to create an environment where a purpose like that could, could be articulated for the organization. By the way, I was lucky enough to see him talk to a bunch of business students, and he was talking about his, his business and the culture. And at a certain point during question and answer, a young, precocious business student said, 
you're closed on Sundays. That's got to cost you a lot of money. There's opportunity costs. There's this, there's that, the competitors. And what do you say to that? And if you were to ever go public, how would that affect the value of your company? He said, well, he said, and you know how he speaks, but he said, well, first of all, we have no intention of ever going public. He says, but second, we never, we don't lose a, a plug nickel. Uh, on, on Sunday's enclosures. And talk about that philosophy, because that is a day of revenue. That's a day of revenue. And no other major food company with the margins that food companies work on, and we'll talk about that in a bit, how do you, how do you have the wherewithal and the fortitude with all of that overhead to say one day a week, ah, we're shutting the doors, and it's a Sunday? You know, when Truett first closed his original Dwarf House restaurant when he, that he opened in 1946, when he closed on Sunday, I'm not sure exactly when he decided it would be closed on Sunday, but people have joked that he decided on Saturday night because he was tired. <laughs> and he had worked, his restaurant had been open 24 hours a day for the previous six days. And it was then that Truett said he decided that a person should, um, if they can't make a living in six days, they might should do something else. And so it was, at first it was a very practical matter for Truett to be closed on Sundays. He realized that his employees needed rest and that he needed rest. Now, that wasn't such a sacrifice in 1946 because most businesses were closed on Sunday. That's right. Where it became a a sacrifice was when he started opening Chick-fil-A restaurants and malls after 1967. And he told the landlords he wouldn't open on Sunday. And he missed some prime opportunities at that time to go into certain malls because he wouldn't open on Sunday. But he didn't waver from his principle of being closed. And um, he can, and then eventually, what the landlords learned is that Chick Fil A could uh, do as many sales in six days as the others could do in seven, and it became a non-issue. And actually, what I heard Truett say a lot about uh, when he was asked, Truett, did you ever calculate how much sales you lost by being closed on Sunday? He said, no, I was far more concerned of how much I would have lost if I were open. <laughs> That's a great answer. And by the way, there was someone in that class who was, who was such a Chick-fil-A fan that said, well, if you know, you've already planned accordingly and you're eating there on Monday <laughs> or Saturday. So in the end, there was no lost volume sale for those folks who go to business school and know what that means. There was no loss. He was dead right. He always said the chicken t- sweeter on Monday when you couldn't have it on Sunday. (laughs) Indeed. This is Lee Habib, and the the chicken does taste sweeter on Monday. As someone who periodically drives up to a Chick-fil-A on Sunday, just out of force of habit, and it's closed, I'm always there on Monday. And we're talking to Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at Chick-fil-A. And what I want you to do, if you get a chance, is go to our website, and that's OurAmericanNetwork.org, and go through and plow through some of our other leadership discussions. It's a very important issue for us, and when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about this thing called culture. It's the C word, and it matters in businesses, it matters in homes, and there's a culture, you can feel it, you can touch it when you walk into a Chick-fil-A. I won't name the competitors, but when you walk into the competitors' places, they're, they're just not looking you in the eye, you're not getting greeted the same, no one's coming to top off your drink when you're sitting down. Never happens. And every time I go to Chick-fil-A, would you like a refill? At a fast food restaurant, no less. And I'm not sure you want me to use that term, but I think that that's who your competitors are. <laughs> and uh, when we come back, more with Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
If you lined up all the restaurants Where I've eaten all my life Give me five bucks and some napkins A plastic fork, a plastic knife Then you gave me the choice To pick where I'd eat today That's a real easy decision One that's not too tough to make I would proudly go for some waffle fries And a jumbo size sweet tea And I won't forget the chickens who died Who gave their life for me So I grab this sandwich Take a bite Put it back down on the tree Yeah, there ain't no doubt I love this place God bless you, Chick-fil-A This is Lee Habib And we're laughing because it's true I always sometimes call it, and I hate using the C word, this C word, the cult of Chick-fil-A, but the, the fandom that is developed from, from Chick-fil-A, the fans, and we love talking to people who create fans and not customers. And uh, Vernon Hill, one of the great bankers in this country, had come up with that book, uh, Creating Fans, Not Customers. And I'm in the fan business, having done a lot of national radio shows. Uh, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at the aforementioned Chick-fil-A. And by the way, before we go on with the book, my little girl has a question. What happened to the fudge brownies with the, with the nuts in them? Because she, 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 she desperately wants to know. Oh, well, guests told us they like chocolate chip cookies better, so we have our great chocolate chunk cookie. I hope she'll fall in love with it. Oh, that no, too. she loves it. Don't get me wrong. And I've told her, look, the market decides, sweetie. The market decides. And uh, the market has spoken. Let's dig into the, the book. And again, it's, uh, it's my pleasure, the impact of extraordinary talent and a compelling culture. And hiring uh, for all the folks there who have a business or for all the folks out here who are employees. Talk to us, and are, by the way, possibly looking for a new job. Talk to us about how you look at the hiring person. Who, who are you looking for? What are you looking for in a hire? Well, first of all, we don't talk about hiring people. We talk about selecting them because we talk about selecting talent versus hiring people. Hiring people is like getting warm bodies to do a job. But when you select talent, you look for just the right skill set for the need that you have. And the way we go about doing that, the first thing we're looking for is people who have a heart for service. Like Truett said, we're in the people business, and what we do is serve people. So we look for people who really have a heart for that. And the way we go about that is we we do what we call the three C's, which is we look at character, competency, and chemistry. And um, through that, we start with character. Our core values are excellence, generosity, loyalty, and integrity. So we look for people who exemplify that in their lives, and and the role model for those values was Truett. And then secondly, we look at competency, you know, the skill set that it takes to do whatever role we have, whether that's at the support center in Atlanta or that's a franchisee, that they they have the necessary skills for the role. And then lastly, we look at chemistry. Is this a good fit? Uh, Is this person uh, as committed to our organization as we are to them? Because we realize that 50 percent of the decision is the person we're selecting, not just uh, our decision. So we make sure that they really understand what they're getting into. And uh, in fact, we uh, we are proud of the fact that we actually try to talk people out of the job. Well, you know, we uh, we do a regular weekly segment with Deb Bolniak and she runs great marriages for Sheboygan. And she has done a remarkable thing there, driving down divorce rates in this county. I mean, it's extraordinary. And part of what she does in the early counseling is, is precisely that. A, maybe these folks don't need to get married. And then when they do, 
It's, are we selecting the right mates? And they have bodies all over these young couples. And then they have, they've assigned mentors to these couples for the rest of their lives. By the way, it makes complete sense, and more churches and more organizations should do this. But it sounds like that's what you're thinking about in this selection process. What, how does the team work? Who makes these decisions? Is it a team-based decision? Is it the, the head of that particular uh, uh, store? How does this decision-making itself happen? At the restaurant level, that's the responsibility of the individual franchisee. So for some franchisees, they make those decisions themselves. Most all of them use a team to make decisions. So somebody will go through a process uh, at the support center in Atlanta when we select a corporate staff member or franchisee. That's a team um, that does that. And do you know, up until late in his career, Truett Cathy interviewed, did the final interview of every single corporate staff member and every single franchisee. And later, our President Jimmy Collins um, did the same up until his retirement in 2001. Is there a question or two that you would advise people asking in this talent recruitment business that reveals the most about a person that one wouldn't normally associate with a traditional interview? One of the things I like to ask, there were uh, there were a couple of things, but the one thing that I, I used to like to ask is um, what would um, – I would ask them what their former employers would say, and what would they say about you? What would they say is um, what – that you need to grow and develop in the most? And so rather than asking the candidate, what, what do you need to grow in and develop the most in, I would ask what other people would say about them. And then I think, um, you know, another unique thing that we do is – um, we look for people, we look for opportunities to find out people's reputation with whom they've been accountable to beyond just the workplace. So if they've been a volunteer coach in an athletic association, we want to talk to those references and learn about them from that perspective. If they've volunteered in the community, the local hospital, wherever it's been, they've been accountable to someone. We want to get that input, not just past employers input. And that gives us a well-rounded view of people. You know, Arthur Laffley, who is, I think, considered one of the great uh, CEOs in America, uh, did a, uh, a long piece for the Harvard Business Review. And he was asked what he looked for in hires. And he, he, he focused a lot on extracurricular activities and what people were doing with their heart, not with their grades. Mm-hmm. And he said, I would rather have somebody who is the captain of the glee club, uh, the head of fundraising for Girl Scout cookies, and had a B minus rather than the A plus student who had no heart for customers and no heart for service. Uh, are, there, are there ways that you look at some of that, are those evaluations too? Uh, this is, I think, such an important decision that we all make, um, which talent we have around us, um, because making the wrong choices can really affect your culture. What other things do you do to make sure that you're getting the right people and the consequences of getting wrong people? When you get wrong people in your culture, what do you do about that? What, what happens when you've gotten the interview process wrong it pretty much reveals itself in a month or two that this is the wrong place, that it's a cultural mismatch. What do you do about those two things? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned about what do you do when you make a mistake. And, and one of the reasons we invest so much on the front end is because we don't want that expense and time and, and really disappointment that everyone has when things don't work out. And so fortunately, we don't have that happen very often that we have to deal with the back end um, issues. But um, when that takes place, you know, Truett was famous for um, – if there was a performance issue, now issues of character are one thing. You know, you don't let people do things that harm the reputation of the organization. But if it were performance issues, um, Truett would ask you what you'd done to try to help the person. And right. then he'd t- send you back and say, try harder. 
um, that you gave every opportunity because both of you invested so much on the front end to enter into this relationship. You bet. He wanted to make sure that you didn't get out of it lightly, but you really worked to uh, try to make it successful. And I can't tell you, but over and over again, when the effort was placed, I saw such success in that. It really happened that way. Well, and that shows his heart for people, too, because too often in life we want to just, quote, cut our losses. And sometimes the problem is the leadership and not the worker itself. This is Lee Habib on Leadership is the segment, and we do this once a week. Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent, is joining us. And her book, It's My Pleasure, The Impact of Extraordinary Talent and a Compelling Culture. More after this. It's not exactly a fancy recording in a recording studio, but it is uh, Dan Cathy and his merry band of music makers at the opening of a store in South Carolina, celebrating, well, as they should. Uh, It's a remarkable business story. It's a remarkable American story. And joining us on our leadership segment in our never-ending series on Leadership Weekly is Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at Chick-fil-A. And she's here to plug her new book, It's My Pleasure, The Impact of Extraordinary Talent and a Compelling Culture. And we were just talking about hiring talent, and we were actually selecting it, as we learned from, uh, from, from the Chick-fil-A folks who deeply believe that in the end, there's a match that has to happen here, and there has to be a real cultural fit. Talk about the maintenance of that culture now. How do you keep it going? You've hired the person, you've selected the person, you've recruited the person. How do you keep them? This is a critical role of leadership um, to maintain that culture. And so we try to do a lot of things. We focus on, um, for instance, uh, I love the idea of commitment versus compliance. You know, compliant employees, that's very transactional. They just do what you ask them to do for a paycheck. But when you have commitment for people, they give you their discretionary effort. They go over and beyond to serve guests and to serve their fellow employees. And so um, we focus on how do we develop that commitment? Well, we do it. Um, a lot of that is just the actual, whether it's at the restaurant level, it's the leadership there, or if it's at our support center, um, it's it has to do about caring about your employees. You know, people don't leave 
businesses. They leave people and they stay or go depending on their relationship with their immediate supervisor. And so one of the ways we maintain culture is to support those who are leading others and uh, helping them uh, be able to perform that role, um, whether it's giving great feedback um, the ability to actually counsel an employee about those things or whether it's um, fostering dreams that employees have about um, things that they'd like to accomplish. Yeah, you know, one of my heroes is, uh, and you know him from Atlanta, is Bernie Marcus. And I got to watch him at a, at a store opening in Paramus, New Jersey. And I just saw a great company leader because I watched him with the employees. And he was there for about a week. And I just kept going back. And one day I just, you know, I, I'm a kid, I'm a journalist, and I started asking him questions. And I said, how do you, how, he used the word hire, not select. And he goes, oh, well, that's easy. If I'm at a store and somebody goes above and beyond the call of duty, wherever I am, I hand him a card, I'm the CEO, and I tell him, how are they treating you here? And how are they paying you? Call me. And they would call him directly. <laughs> and, and so the idea of finding the right people, I think, is something that goes deeply into creating that culture, maintaining the people. Uh, my goodness, you're, that, that sounds like that's a real commitment. How much of your resources would you say you spend selecting versus maintaining? Well, true, it always felt like if you selected the right person, it solved a lot of the problems. So um, we definitely invest heavily in that whole selection process. Um, I, I think the biggest discrepancy is we don't have to invest a lot on the back end. We don't lose a lot of people with a high retention rate of 95%. Um, that's where we uh, we don't have to invest as much. And so we I would say we equally um, support both the selection and the maintenance of that culture. That's great. And what you're, there, something we get over and over again is the difference between a calling and a job. Mm. Um, let's talk about the differentiation between those two. Yes, you know, I, I go back to my own story. And uh, I went to when I went to college, I really felt like I, I went as a journalism major and thought I was going to end up in full time ministry. And met my husband, who was a pastor, and and I envisioned us doing that. Um, Later, I I went to work for Chick-fil-A, and he left the full-time ministry. And so there was a time in my life that I thought, oh, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not fulfilling my calling of being in full-time ministry. And then I realized I was doing that because my calling was to help other people find theirs. And when people work out of their true calling versus just a job they have, they actually impact lives. And so when I think about a job, that's just something that gets printed on a resume. Um, but a calling is something that you have for all of your life. It's what you were made to do versus what gives you a paycheck. No doubt. And I think that gets back to that commitment versus compliance in the end. You know, it's interesting. Justice Scalia was just, uh, was, we just learned that this great jurist had passed along and we, we did an hour on him last night. And it was interesting. His favorite quote came from a Yale law professor and this was it. And imagine he's a lawyer, one of the great lawyers of all time. And he said this, and he was a really committed Catholic. He said in heaven, there are no laws. The lion will lay with the lamb mm-hmm. in hell. There are only laws. And I think that that revealed a lot to him about his philosophy about America, that there had been too many rules. He was trying to get back to a simplified constitution, let the people make decisions without all of these laws. Because what you get there is compliance, Mm -hmm. but you don't get commitment. And that was what Truett was great about. I I was actually speaking to a group earlier, and I was telling him when he started out, he used to tell his franchisees there were three rules. Don't open on Sunday. Don't change the menu and put the money in the bank. (laughs) And uh, and and, And that's how the phrase, it's my pleasure, came about. It was one of Truett's few edicts. And uh, he actually made that an edict to the chain asking, um, 
our team members not only to to greet guests in that way when they said thank you to say it's my pleasure, but also to fulfill it. It's my pleasure kind of service. Now, given that this is a part of your business advantage, look, you're not about to give away the formula to that fried chicken. There's no way you're giving that up any more than Coca-Cola would give up their formula to anybody. But yet in some respects, you're giving up a piece of the formula of your business success because what you're sharing here are business practices in the end. Why are you sharing these with all of your competitors? It is a great question. You know, I don't think it's any secret. I mean, all you have to do is walk into a Chick-fil-A restaurant and spend enough time observing to see what it is that we're doing that's making us successful. There's nothing, um, I mean, you can see how people are trained. You can see what's happening there. But this is why I think this is important. And and Truett had this abundancy mentality as well. When we um, all together in the marketplace, when we help everyone get better, get to get better, the marketplace gets better. And I think that's good for our economy. And so um, the fact that we share secrets of how to treat people better, how to treat employees better, how to treat guests better, if everyone did that, we'd all be better off. Well, and there's no doubt, and this, I think, is what made, whether he'd like me to say it or not, a capitalist, because capitalists believe in abundance. By the way, Christians believe in abundance. Um, it's, the, it, it's others who believe that the pie just stays at a certain size, and then we're, we're all carving it up. And that, that, that limits resources, limits our ideas and options in life. What's given you the deepest sense of fulfillment in your life? The deepest sense of fulfillment that I have found is, you were just talking about that whole idea of calling. And it's helping other people find what they were made to do and um, what the calling on their life is and seeing them be successful at that. There's nothing that excites me more in my job than to see somebody earn a promotion. I'm like a kid at Christmas. I can't go I can't go to sleep the night before knowing I'm going to get to talk to somebody about the new opportunity that they have. And so um, in the business world, that's certainly been it. And in my personal life, it's seeing my children achieve the same. That's great. And, you know, there's a, there's a very famous Gore Vidal quote, which is the opposite of that spirit. He said, when a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies. Mm-hmm. And I pity the guy who has that kind of idea. And if we're going to have the right leaders, they've got to really be rooting for their people Absolutely. and be genuinely happy, happy when good things happen. Uh, tell us something about yourself that none of us would expect. <laughs> I can quote the Superman call backwards. Oh, no, please do. You know it forwards. Look, it's a bird. It's playing. No, it's Superman up, up and away. Well, backwards, that's cool. Stia drip, stia enap, on stia namerpus, poo, 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 Donna Yahweh. <laughs> that's really good. That's the best one yet. That's our best one. <laughs> that gets a high five from Lance. <laughs> so was there a... Was there, <laughs> could you do that one more time? Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> cool. Stia drip, stia enap, on stia namerpus, poo, 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 Donna Yahweh. Same exact way. That was not. That is the real thing. Or as we say in New Jersey, that wasn't a fugazi. So tell us about uh, a teacher in your life who had a profound impact. I think so many teachers in our culture get no recognition. Uh, tell us about a teacher in your life. Uh, that's easy. That's Janice Bright. She was my ninth and twelfth grade English teacher. When I was in the ninth grade, uh, she encouraged me greatly. She challenged me. She pushed me. And then in my ninth grade yearbook, she wrote these words: "I'd like an autographed copy of your first book." And so on November the 18th, it was my privilege to have Mrs. Bright, who's long since retired, come to a Chick-fil-A restaurant where I treated her to dinner and presented her with her signed copy of It's My Pleasure. Wow, that is wonderful. You know, we learned from uh, a story about Vince Lombardi that one of his boys, who is now a man, was telling us a story about how Coach told him that he was going to be a Hall of Fame guard one day if he would just believe it himself. 
And it was it was 35 years later, him talking about Coach Lombardi. And he remembered that day. And he said, from that day on, the, ter- the wheels started spinning in his head about how to prepare, how to think, and even how to take the criticism from his coach, which periodically came from Coach Lombardi. He wasn't necessarily the easiest guy to work with. Very quick answer here, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, if you had a choice. Stones. The Stones. My, my wife is with you. I'm a Beatles person. She's a Stones person. And she sometimes doesn't forgive me for that. This is Lee Habib. And, well, we've been talking to Deanne Turner, and we've been talking about life. We've been talking about work. And a final thought, 30 seconds, Deanne, uh, about anybody running a business, anybody trying to run a, uh, an organization, a single insight uh, before we leave. 30 seconds. I think the most important thing that we can do if we're going to invest our time in being in business or in running a business is to think about the impact we have on other people. Uh, we have incredible opportunity to give people opportunities or to take in uh, or to take their opportunities away and so if we're going to bother to invest in a business or spend time working we might as well do it for some bigger good than ourselves that's a beautiful closing thought the impact we can have on other people on leadership deanne turner it's my pleasure the impact of extraordinary talent on a compelling culture all about that great culture we know as Chick-fil-A. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear this and all that we do.